Today's podcast is sponsored by the guys in the flag jackets. Gary and Jim are the guys in the flag jackets. Every week, these two sit down and discuss a wide variety of political issues, all the way from the weird and wonderful world of local politics to more obscure political ideas and concepts. Ever wondered about the 1979 Chicago mayoral election? Well, I hadn't either until these guys came along and blew my mind. Or did you know that the layout of the ballot can have a crazy influence upon the way you vote? Neither did I, but thankfully Gary and Jim were there to tell me all about it. So if you want a fun and intriguing look into US politics from a unique perspective, check out the guys in the Flag Jackets podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find the link in the description below. I have to admit, I used to be a little bit of a book snob. I wouldn't even consider a Kindle, let alone an audiobook. It just felt like cheating. But that is until I tried Audible and Open Audible. Ever wonder where I find the time to read all the books that my guests have written on this show? Well, this is the answer. When I'm behind in my reading, I just jump to audiobook. Open Audible is a cross-platform audiobook manager designed for Audible users that can allow you to download, view, manage, and connect your favorite audiobooks on MP3 so that you can enjoy them across all your devices. Best of all, you can control it all from a desktop application. I'm giving away a copy of Open Audible for the entire month of November. All you have to do is sign up to my mailing list. You'll find the link in the description below or go to openaudible.org for more information. So, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Benjamin Jones, uh, Deputy Director of the Free Speech Union. Uh, Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thanks very much. No problem. Um, So, we live in Britain, in the United Kingdom, in possibly one of the freest societies that has ever existed. Why do we need a free speech union? I wish we didn't. And I wish my email inbox was a little quieter. um, And I wish I wasn't uh, and the free speech union weren't needed in the line of work that we're doing. Unfortunately, since we were founded in February of 2020, we've had to help literally hundreds and hundreds of people uh, from all walks of life who have found themselves cancelled in the vernacular, forced out of their line of work, whatever it might be, uh, or, or facing very serious consequences indeed for speaking their mind. Um, those people aren't really easily categorised. Some of them are academics, but they're really people drawn from all walks of life. It's a complete cross-section of society. So any day I might be speaking to a doctor in the NHS, I might be speaking to a cleaner, I might be speaking to a lorry driver or a teacher or a nurse. It's hugely variable. The The range of their views are very uh, incredibly varied as well. It's not people coming all from the left or the right. Um, it's people with a, a wide spectrum of philosophical, religious, political, social views, um, who frankly probably wouldn't agree with each other about very much at all. Um, but in the censorious climate that I'm afraid exists and, and has taken hold, I think probably particularly since 2016 or thereabouts, um, they are turning to the Free Speech Union for help because they're facing absolutely dire consequences for expressing views often that would have been completely non-controversial five or six years ago. Uh, but which have now t- taken on the status of uh, of being almost sacred ideas, mm. um, uh, and these people are being punished almost as as, as blasphemers or, or as apostates for people who have who have left the the left progressive side of politics, particularly over um, the trans debate. Mm. So, like, is there is there any overarching? theme or like patterns in in the sorts of people and the the complaints they're making or is it really like varied it's really varied there are some trends within that so in our first year of operation so going back to 2020 uh, aside from everything else that was the year of black lives matter and so what we found uh, in our first year we had a large thrust of our work of the people coming to us for assistance with people who had expressed a different view about how to challenge racism we were not contacted by people who thought that racism was unproblematic. We were contacted by people who didn't want to take on uh, a, a very uh, progressive critical race theory, American view uh, of anti-racism mm. and who took a more liberal, perhaps a more individualistic approach to uh, to the issues of, of, of race and racism. Um, and in the hysteria that seemed to take hold of, of Britain um, and indeed the English speaking world, in the summer of 2020, um, following uh, the murder of George Floyd, um, 
the, these issues really reached ahead and, and we were inundated at that time with people who uh, had expressed, as I say, pretty moderate, pretty uh, liberal uh, viewpoints about this. Since then, and I think particularly in the last year, um, that's been a less prominent issue in terms of the people who've been coming to us for help. And really the preponderance in the last year has been uh, gender critical feminists, that is to say feminists uh, who don't agree with trans ideology, the idea that you can you can change your, your gender. Mm. Um, now, once again, the, these people, by and large, the gender critical feminists we're speaking to, they don't have an objection to um, people wanting to live their life in their own way, but they're concerned about where the demands of, of, of a certain section of trans activists coincide with the rights of women and girls. Um, and so the Free Speech Union, frankly, that's not our fight. We don't have a view, a corporate collective view on that issue. Mm-hmm. But what we insist on is that people in all sides of that debate with all sorts of different perspectives can speak their minds without losing their job or being forced out of their university or whatever the consequence might be. Um, and that hasn't been the case. Um, and overwhelmingly, the uh, direction of traffic has been one way. It's not been the, the, the trans right activists who have been silent. They're very able to express their views, often in extremely bellicose language. It's entirely, overwhelmingly, the gender critical feminists um, and their supporters who are being punished, penalised, who are afraid to, to speak out. Mm. So, as I say, we don't take a, a collective view on the issue. That's not what we're set up to do. We're set up to uh, defend people, whatever they're perspectives and to defend their right within the law to express their views mm. so now i've had um i believe the general critical feminists are affectionately referred to as turfs uh, <laughs> which is yeah I, it took it was a long time before I, I even understood what that meant but uh, <laughs> i just saw it thrown about the internet like a yeah like one of the insults that gets thrown well, everywhere you know I, I think that that touches on something that has been of real interest to me and in that, that the, these debates perhaps three or four years ago quite recently um were very arcane and they, they were a bit like I, I don't know, d- debates among early Christians in the Byzantine Empire. They were full of, of completely impenetrable, almost religious language. Um, and as I've said, these kind of sacred concepts that were, were completely incomprehensible to those of us who were uninitiated into these uh, into these debates. But unfortunately, even if you don't take an interest in this ideology, this ideology is taking an interest in you. And I remember talking to friends about this, um, you know, perhaps five years ago and saying, it's not really very good the way we're, we're progressing. There does seem to be this sense of intolerance. And it was easy to think at that time, people say, well, it's just confined to universities. It's people in sociology departments going off the deep end. Mm. So what? That's been happening since the 60s. That's, <laughs> that's not news at all. Yeah. Um, but the trouble is, it clearly isn't confined to the sociology departments or to the universities. It's spreading out into, uh, well, it's now spread out into HR departments, into uh, corporations, into the, the Ministry of Defence and the military. Um it's it's completely across um, public life and, and private business. So even if, you know, a few years ago, perhaps it, it would have been possible to go through life without knowing any of these terms like turf or any of these debates or, or and being completely unfamiliar with it. Now, unfortunately, um, as I say, these debates do take an interest in you and they, they are demanding that people comply with the set of sacred ideas that, uh, that the trans right activists have been, have been putting forward. Mm. Yeah, it's funny you use the word sacred ideas, given that I'd say a lot of these people are probably quite critical of any sort of religion. <laughs> anyway, uh, and I guess the key to note is that like none of the stuff, it's it's not about like saying that people can't hold these views. It's that like the, the issue is when their view is superior to someone else's and the, the other ones can't be expressed, basically. Like short of it being like, actual calls for violence yeah. um but so we've had i've had like uh i've had a professor um david oh my goodness i'm gonna forget his name i'm gonna have to look this up but i've had a professor on my show um who was fired from bristol university for uh some comments he made about uh the israeli foreign policy hey, and actually uh, sorry what were you gonna say is that david miller david miller that's it yeah, yeah. and actually it wasn't even 
It wasn't even about the Israeli foreign policy. He was investigated for his comments, found to have not said anything um, bad, and then announced that he had been under investigation. And the announce his announcement that he'd been under investigation um, was used by some students as uh, them. Then they then complained that they felt unsafe, and then he was suspended. I believe he'll probably win his court case, but like I can. I understand what's happened there, right, with like a professor where the students have said, okay, you know, where, where they're wading into complicated and very controversial issues, right? I don't think he should have been fired, but the, I could you give us some examples perhaps of, of, of say, other people in, in, in careers that you wouldn't presume like speech would be an issue, even a controversial issue, you know, like a... You mentioned there, like nurses, I think you you said, yeah. or doctors, um, or just I don't know. Is there is there exact like silly examples where it's like careers that you think people's opinions like shouldn't even come into it that have been fired? Yeah, certainly. I'm afraid I I could probably give you uh, too many examples to, to fill the whole hour. Hmm. Um, I'll start with an example um, of a man. This is in the public domain, so I can talk about it uh, entirely. Lots of our work, uh, I'm afraid, is understandable reasons confidential mm -hmm. but he was back with Jeremy Sleeth um, and he was a train conductor and had worked for a railway company for many years without complaint with a, with a good record and so on he once I think it was after the second lockdown had ended um, he posted on uh, his Facebook page words to the effects of thank goodness the pubs are uh, open once again we don't want to live in an alcohol-free caliphate I think that's almost verbatim. It was words to that effect. <laughs> words to that effect. So perhaps not language everybody would use, but you know, he, he was not. He, there's no animus in that statement towards anybody. There's no animus towards Muslims. He's simply saying he doesn't want to live in an alcohol-free caliphate. And I expect the vast majority of your listeners would agree with that sentiment. Um, now he posted this on Facebook, and because of that, he lost his job. He then went through uh, through the internal uh, sort of quasi-judicial process, which is, is, is very much like a, 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 a trial, mm. um, but manned entirely by, by sort of HR uh, busybodies and the like. So you go through this sort of quasi-judicial process almost when you're fired from your job or you're, you're placed under investigation. And then after that, he was sacked, as I've said, and he was then in the position of going to an employment tribunal and he was going to be representing himself at the tribunal, which I gather from the lawyers I know is not usually a wise course of action. Fortunately, we uh, we found Jeremy, we got in contact with him and we were able to crowdfund to pay his legal fees and to arrange legal representation for him. So I, I think we raised something like £25,000 and the bulk of that we raised um, over the course of a Monday morning. We put it out in our in our newsletter um, to our to our members. So at the moment we have about ten thousand, ten and a half thousand members. Um, so it went out to our, our membership list, to our social media, and we raised mainly through uh, small donations of, of something like you know 10, 15, 20 pounds, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, we raised enough money to pay his legal fees, and then he went on to win his case. Um, and part of the argument he made was that. Uh, his belief system, secular atheism, um, should be protected and that he shouldn't be discriminated against for that belief. So uh, that was an argument that rested on, uh, in part, on the Equality Act. Mm. Um, so I think he's a really good example of somebody who is absolutely not a public figure. He's an ordinary member of the public um, in an ordinary job. He's not a high-profile academic. He's not a celebrity. Mm. Um, and I think there is a perception from people who would criticise the Free Speech Union's work, that cancel culture is a sort of confected uh, right-wing... Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, that it's a confection to sell uh, to sell newspapers for the Telegraph and the Mail. Yeah. Um, it's or absolutely... All the, like all the right-wing comedians whose tours are called cancelled uh, <laughs> while they're selling <laughs> yeah. out arenas. Um, yeah. It's, so, there's definitely a trope there that exists. It, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there is, there is this... You know, attempt to claim that that we've been set up and that there isn't a real problem here. Mm. I think Jeremy Sleeth's case is Exhibit A in our rebuttal that actually there is a huge problem that is not confined to universities. I think, in fact, only about one in five of our cases uh, concern academics or students, mm. and that as I've described, 
um, the process since 2016 of these ideas filtering out of universities and uh, infecting, and I think that's probably um, not too strong a word, uh, infecting public life, the private sector. Um, you can see how, how council culture um, is claiming the, the livelihoods of, of people who've really not done anything wrong. Mm. You know, perhaps they've used a clumsy form of words, perhaps they've used a form of words that most people wouldn't use, but very often they've just expressed their own views um, in pretty temperate language mm. and their views are pretty non-controversial um, but they still fall foul of this set of sacred ideas um, so I, I think I think he's a really good example I mean I can give you yeah well just uh, briefly what was what was the like what was the reasoning given for like firing him like did they, did they say specifically like we find this comment to be some like racist and Islamophobic like I, I don't know, deemed anti-lockdown. <laughs> like, like, what what was the reason given? The the thing the thing we see in cases like this um, is there are a set of of policies that you sign up to when you're employed, and um, they, there there will be things like an equality policy, a dignity and respect policy. There'll there'll be a social media policy almost certainly, um, and one of the clauses uh, in a contract that usually catches people out, which can catch people out. Um, is a prohibition on bringing your employer into disrepute. Now, that can mean almost anything. And I think we've sleepwalked into a situation, effectively, where you can have freedom of speech if you're retired or if you're mm. fantastically wealthy and you don't need to worry about paying your rent or your mortgage. But if you're employed, you only have freedom of speech subject to the approval of your employer and subject to you not saying anything that brings your employer into what they decide uh, is disreputable mm. and so jeremy sleuth's employer could say well that comment brings us into disrepute and he signed a contract um which stipulates that um and so i, I think we we have reached a really awful position where basically if you're if you're wealthy you're fine you can say what you like within the law um but for those of us who are employed it's really very very difficult um and so i i think if you forgive my saying, that's one of the, the aspects of the work that I'm proudest of, that, mm. that we're helping people. Um, it's it's not just the household names or the, you know, the Jacob Rowlands and Kathleen Stocks. Um, it, it is people like Jeremy Sleeth. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned um, academics and students. Like, yeah. what, what what's happening with students that they're getting, like, what, are they getting expelled from the universities? I think the most ludicrous case I've seen, and this is saying something, was the case of uh, Lisa Keogh Abate University. This was about a year and a half ago now, I think. Um, and she, in the course of a, of a seminar, she was a law student, she was a final year law student, I think just a few months away from finishing her degree. Um, and she had expressed the, the not especially controversial view that uh, only women have vaginas. Okay. So <laughs> right. that, I, I mean, you, you have to laugh because it's ludicrous that that would become a, a matter of, of controversy. But for that, she was placed under. Isn't that why people get like surgery? Well, like, isn't was... that the point? <laughs> she... Well, you might think. I mean, <laughs> no. you know what yeah. I mean. <laughs> it, it, absolutely ludicrous. But, but unfortunately, what happened next is not, is not funny in the slightest, because she was placed under investigation. She, um, she was a, a mature student, I, I think, uh, well, in her late 20s, I think, and she had children. So she had a lot of stress. She had a final year law exams um, and she had uh, children to think about. And then she was placed under investigation right at the tail end of her degree for this completely innocuous comment. So... I think she, her case um, is so, it's such a good demonstration of what students can be up against. And even though she's she's eventually cleared the investigation, it takes a very long time for that process to happen, mm. uh, during which she's under a huge amount of stress and is distracted from her exams and so on. Um, and it, this is not an original observation, but the process is the punishment in cases like that. Um, and so you have her case, she might win ultimately, and she did, and um, we, we spend a lot of time assisting her with that. But I think you have to then consider the chilling effect that that has on everybody else who was in that seminar mm. who might have agreed with her. Yeah. And and I, one of the things we see quite frequently now, and I, 
I was speaking to some academics about this, in fact, on Tuesday, um, is about the position of, well, generally it's young women, um, you know, perhaps first year students um, who have gender critical views and their fear about expressing these opinions at all. I mean, we've, we've reached a point where students are having to be smuggled into lectures by, by gender critical speakers because they don't want their peers to notice them going in and they don't want to be perceived as the really? supporting. Yeah. Yeah, that actually this happened. This happened recently at Cambridge. So, it. I mean, Cambridge have gone a bit off the off the cliff edge, man. Like they, <laughs> yeah. No, I saw an article that they they they're planning to teach gender neutral German, and I was like, what? <sighs> like, as someone I, who, who who can speak German, at least well, at least an Austrian dialect version of German, but German, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm. The trouble is the monoculture now is such that pushing back against these things requires, I mean, I don't think it's overstating to say it requires personal courage because you can find yourself in a situation where you're, you're ostracized by your peers, um, which is difficult for anybody. I think whatever your age, but it's particularly difficult for a teenager who's just arrived at university and wants to make friends. Yeah. Um, yeah and teenagers, despite the stereotype are actually, I think, incredibly conformist. Um, and it's very difficult to go against the grain at any age, but particularly for for young students. Mm. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but unfortunately, there is a clear generational component to this. So I, I finished my undergraduate degree ten years ago in twenty twelve, and it was a completely different climate. And I had yeah. the, the I'd have been fucked. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was the the kind of small L liberal um, in the classical sense education mm. that had been provided for decades centuries you might say um and so i had a process of university education that was fundamentally like the one that my parents generation would have had and then you fast forward just four or five six years hence um, and you can see that that is not what students are getting now um and the polling is pretty dire actually on what on what um on what students think about freedom of speech um and interestingly there's quite a big um sex divide um, there does seem to be quite a significant component um, of, of young women who are more hostile to free speech. But on the flip side of that, and I wouldn't want to generalise on the flip side of that, there are some very courageous, as I've just said, mm-hmm. young women at universities who are really pushing back against uh, gender ideology and who, and who are uh, very forthright in expressing their views, despite the huge difficulties that entails. Um, so I do think I do think as hope. I, I don't think it's right for people to despair, um, and I think the climate at universities can be turned around. But it, it it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of boring work. It takes a lot of work of going through committees of making sure HR policies aren't censorious, um, and it, it takes a lot of time and energy. And I think the pro free speech side have to have more energy and a stronger will to resist this council culture and the censorship that exists on campus and in workplaces um, than our opponents do. Um, and I'd say, again, whatever your view on the on the, the trans debate, that does seem to be where most of our, um, our, our troubles are coming from with respect to free speech at the moment. Mm. But whatever your views on that, I think people on campus and elsewhere need to be able to talk openly about it. And um, it's just not happening at the moment. Or it's, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what tends to happen as well, paradoxically, is in an in an attempt to ensure that their that an ideology prevails by shutting someone else someone else down in in any sense or in any case, what tends to happen is that you you make the opponents stronger by making martyrs out of them, like. If if they hadn't like it, it's almost as if they would they they would have more chance of winning the argument if they hadn't tried to shut people down, and I think that happens in a lot of cases. There's this weird thing like where the more you attempt to censor something like this, this it's basically the Streisand effect on the internet, you know, where the more you try and shut something down, the more it will rear its ugly head. Um, it's like I that's, think that's yeah. Sorry, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think Kathleen Stock is a good example. So she was the uh, academic at Sussex University who, who was effectively handed out of a job. Um, and she was not a, 
household name. She was a well-respected academic in her field. Um, but her, her fame and her influence um, has increased dramatically since this attempt to ruin her life, to ruin her career. So although it had the effects of uh, effectively forcing her out of her job, um, it has hugely increased her profile. And likewise, um, with the Free Speech Union, there was an attempt by PayPal uh, earlier this year, just a couple of months ago, uh, to close our account to stop us using their, their services because well, it's not entirely clear why, uh, because they didn't like something about what we were doing and sticking up for people. Um, and because of that, that attracted such a huge backlash. Thousands and thousands of people wrote showing us that they cancelled their PayPal accounts in response. Our membership dramatically increased. Members of Parliament, uh, I can't remember how many, I think 40 or 50 MPs, uh, including former leader of the Conservative Party, signed a letter um, to the government asking for action to be taken on this. The business secretary at the time condemned it. And so I think, as you say, that's a classic Streisand effect where the Free Speech Union, uh, there's an attempt to shut us down by PayPal and it's completely backfired. So if you're, if you're strong enough and well-connected enough to, to survive an attempt like that, mm. um, or if we can help you survive an attempt like that, it can completely backfire. But what I'd also say is that lots of people aren't in a position where they have um, access to um, a high profile and to journalists, and they're not able to uh, make clear and expose what's happening to them. And so in those cases, I think it's tremendously difficult um, to fight back. And so I, I think that's what, what the Free Speech Union can offer, is, is, a, is a unique uh, service where we are helping people um, in situations like that all the time. Um, and I think going back to, to one of your very first questions, I, I wish we didn't have to exist. I wish we didn't have to be doing this kind of work. Um, but unfortunately, at the moment, there's a huge demand for it. Mm. Well, I guess freedom and democracy comes with the responsibility to have to endlessly defend it. Um, you can't just build a system and then have it be perfect. You know, it's no. always going to degrade, I think. But thankfully, we have people like yourselves. So um, let's talk a little bit more about, about this PayPal thing. Yes. So like, what, what, yeah, do you want to just explain to people what happened? And then, then we can go a little deeper. So uh, for those who don't know, the Free Speech Union was founded by the journalist and writer Toby Young. Um, and Toby had an email on uh, the 15th of September, completely out of the blue, uh, informing him that PayPal were uh, initiating closure of the Free Speech Union's account. They also closed his personal account and they closed the account of another organisation he founded called Daily Skeptic. Um, this was with absolutely no warning whatsoever. Uh, no real justification was was ever provided to us, except that uh, he, and by extension, the Free Speech Union, uh, had breached the acceptable use policy uh, that PayPal has in place. So to, to give some kind of sense of the impact this has, I think about a third of our members paid their monthly or annual subscriptions via PayPal. So, I mean, imagine if you're running a small business and a third of your income uh, is suddenly lost. Um, so that was the the pretty cataclysmic situation we were uh, we were faced with. Um, as I've just described a moment ago, in response to that, we were able to mobilise a a pretty huge backlash against PayPal, um, and it, it received very widespread uh, condemnation, and the accounts ultimately were uh, were restored. And part of the the backlash. Uh, was on social media and thousands of, of, of people, uh, as I said a moment ago, had cancelled their accounts with, with PayPal. And I think in the in the sort of the weeks where this was going on, they, they lost something like $20 billion um, off their uh, of their market value. So, really? $20 um, billion? It, it, and That's they, a lot. They, it's a lot of money. Um, and they had to backtrack in the end. And what, one of the, the other components of, of this backlash against PayPal was that they had announced an update to their acceptable use policy, um, which essentially gave PayPal the right to, to, to fine their customers two and a half thousand dollars and shut down their accounts if they promoted misinformation. Mm -hmm. which, uh, uh, you see, I've just been doing some Googling and uh, Snopes is saying that they didn't do that. Even though, like, it's absolutely amazing what, what happened with this thing. Like, yeah. the, the machine 
jumped to the defense of PayPal like you wouldn't believe. Like, like I, I saw the things. I read the bit in the terms of service. I know you're telling the truth here, right? Yeah. And yet, like, I'm just pulling up these articles for people here to show them. Like, it's the, the Snopes one is, no, PayPal isn't planning to fine users $2,500 for misinformation. MSN, no, PayPal, PayPal won't fine people for spreading misinformation. It's like, yes, that's that's exactly what they said they were going to do. Like, and <laughs> it's insane. And the, the problem is, I mean, so so our response to this is is basically, and we've... We should, I should say as well, we, we have had a lot of contacts from people since who have had their accounts suspended either by PayPal or by uh, companies that use PayPal uh, or, or indeed other financial um, service providers um, for expressing their views. And again, that often tends to be gender critical feminists as well, or people expressing their views on that issue. So there's been a spate of this stuff going on. The, the, the Free Speech Union, what happened to us, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Lots of kind of small content creators have uh, have had their accounts shut down, and it, it has a obviously it has a really damaging effect, um, and, and can completely um, completely cut your business off at the knees. So it's very frightening. Um, so we're of the view that companies should not be able to um, discriminate on these political grounds uh, when they're providing financial services. I mean. There is a counter argument to that. There'd be people of a libertarian perspective who'd say, well, okay, I don't like that it's happened and I wouldn't make that decision, but it's a private business, so it should be allowed to do whatever it wants. Now, the issue there is that for a company like PayPal, for, for these financial service providers, they are monopolies mm -hmm. and they are not just um, a business within the marketplace. They are now absolutely integral to making the market function. So I think, to my way of thinking, they are of a different category they are not merely private businesses they have become absolutely fundamental um, to the way our economy operates now um, and we cannot have a situation i think where people be it the free speech union and and content creators uh, or ordinary punters can have their their accounts closed by their bank or by their financial service provider by paypal or by whoever it is so i think it's this really i think should be of concern to everybody listening because you might think, well, I'm never going to be engaged in promoting misinformation. I'm never going to be engaged in kind of content creation or whatever. But do we really want a situation where your accounts can be closed because PayPal don't like your political views or they disagree with your religious or philosophical beliefs? Um, in the latter case, I think we clearly accept that discrimination already. Um, but I, I think it's a very, very, very dangerous um, territory that we're, that we're approaching with these issues so we're very active now um, in pushing back against against this um, and what is heartening about the whole episode is that the the backlash against paypal has shown that there is a real cost to companies behaving like this so that's that's promising i think but there's a lot of work to be done and we've um, we wrote a report recently uh, that just came out a couple of weeks ago uh, essentially auditing various uh, financial services so um, Patreon, Ko-fi, GoFundMe, uh, and so on, um, to to assess their terms and conditions. Uh, and what we found is really very startling. Uh, and the majority of the uh, of the companies that we looked at, and this report's on our website. It's quite short, so you can go. What's and it called? It I'm just going to pull it up here. Yeah. So if you, if you go to the Free Speech Union website, um, it's called uh, uh, "How Free Speech Friendly Are the Major Payment Processes and Crowdfunding Platforms." And so that came out this month. Um, and when you go through it, you can see that we have uh, gone through basically the, the biggest uh, examples of, of these companies um, and gone through all of their terms and conditions. And the majority of them have incredibly subjective language about uh, how their platforms can be used or what kind of content you can, you can put out while using these platforms. So only uh, Stripe and WorldPay uh, were unproblematic, if I can use that word. Um, and the rest we looked at were really pretty seriously concerning. Um, and so, as I said, I think this is a real concern to everybody, or it should be. And I think this is a major front now in the free speech, cancel culture wars. Uh, it's really very troubling. I, I think it's probably among the most sinister 
forms of cancel culture I've seen in my time at the Free Speech Union, certainly. Yeah, it's... Sorry, I was just trying to find it there. I have it here, full briefing. Um, so, yeah, you go through, what, PayPal, WorldPay, Stripe. Pretty sure Stripe was founded by a person from Northern Ireland. Woo. Let's cheer my fucking home country. Amazon Pay, Shopify, Revolut. Like, and and the, the, the insidious thing for me about this, this sort of, oh, if you say the wrong thing, you can't use our service to, to use your own money yeah. is like a really disturbing what seems a front runner to the sort of central bank digital currencies slash um, social credit score that our glorious leaders seem to love to praise and uh, attempt to emulate. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I don't. I don't really agree. I don't really agree. I don't. Re I don't agree with the stuff that Kanye was saying recently. However, he made the very salient point that all he did was say the wrong thing, and he wasn't. He his his Apple Pay was turned off. Like he said the wrong thing, and he had no access to the money that was his. Um, which is is like you think your money is yours. Like you've earned it. You've gone out and fucking earned it, and you say it with malice or not. Like the wrong thing. And you can have your no access to like things that are essential to 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 life, and that disturbs me so much. Man, what disturbs me more is the sort of acceptance of that 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 seems yeah. like it, it. It doesn't feel like there's a big pushback against against that idea. It's like, oh well, you shouldn't have said it then. And it's like, yeah, okay, but wait till it happens to you. I, th I think what happened to Free Speech Union was a bit of a wake up call to people, and we were. You know, we were pretty pleased with the political backlash to it. Um, and a lot of members of parliament were really very concerned about, uh, I think for exactly the reason you've just described, about, about what this decision suggests about the way our economy is going to function in the future. I think, I mean, the social credit system is, is, is an obvious and unnerving comparison to make. But I think there's one key difference in that in an in a authoritarian regime, be it, be it China or Russia or whatever, you know what you can't say, but in the in the West at the moment, particularly in the Anglosphere West, you can say something two years ago, and it's fine. Nobody bats an eyelid, and then suddenly it, it, it's found to violate one of these sacred ideas, and you can lose your job, or or PayPal can close your account, or whatever. Um, and so I, I think that that's again one of the really troubling aspects of. Of, of the mess the West seems to have found itself in at, at the moment, where our social mores are changing so quickly um, that, that people cannot possibly keep up or be expected to, to keep up. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes I find myself explaining to, uh, in a particular to my parents' generation, of, of trying to explain some case or some situation that's gone on in the news. Um, and if, if you're not on social media regularly and you're not on Twitter, it's absolutely incomprehensible. I mean, the case I cited earlier of, uh, of Lisa Keogh at Abate University, mm -hmm. that is incomprehensible. If you've not spent the last five years uh, learning about what trans rights activists believe and about uh, transgender ideology and all the rest of it, that is a completely incomprehensible situation. You cannot understand it. Um, yeah, I've, I've had this, the discussions about it with older relatives and family friends or just like vaguely i'll be talking about something but like, oh yeah did you see this person got banned or something or that you know they they've seen some headlines about jk rowling in the yeah. in the press and they're like oh well you know she must have said something awful and i'm like no she expressed something that to a lot of people seems very reasonable and and has been shredded for it like shredded i i can't i don't like before I really went and looked at it, I thought she'd said something really abhorrent. I thought she must have said something really vile and disgusting. Yeah. And it turns out what she said was, I don't think trans women are the same as women who were born as, as women. Or, you know, that's paraphrasing. But that, that was the, the essentially what she said. And that was enough for people to call her a bigot, and a transphobe and like disown her from her entire body of work that's brought so much joy to millions. It's incredible. 
it is uh, and the the vitriol and intimidation um that that jake rowling and, and her supporters attract and people that we've had people who've been who've been sacked for saying jk rowling has the right to say what she said wait that just for how, just for not even for agreeing with what she said just for saying that she has the right that's how that's how and they were they were fired yeah. Like actually, they lost their job because of that. They lost job, lost work from it. Yeah. Like, so that, they, like what? What was this? Just because of that? That that thing that you said earlier about the policies that people sign when they when they start a job. In part, um, and uh, you know, to some extent, you can understand if you're running a business, you you don't want your employees bringing you into disrepute by saying something horrendously racist or or something that, that most people would find utterly appalling or mm. that your customers would find completely abhorrent. So mm -hmm. it, you can see some sense in a provision like that, but it's so subjective that it that it can be interpreted so broadly um, as to place an employee completely at the, the sort of capricious whims of their employer in terms of whether they're allowed to articulate their, their opinions or not. Mm. Um, and so exactly as I said, merely for defending the rights of people to uh, express these views. And this comes back, in fact, as well to the, the PayPal case um, with the Free Speech Union, where, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, we're not engaged in articulating a view about the gender debate or any of these other issues where our members have found themselves in trouble. All we're saying is that people should be able to express their opinions without being censored. Um, and still, because we're merely defending the rights of people to do that, uh, we had our account taken down. It's completely baffling that, like, where <sighs> you mentioned 2016 as as yeah. as somewhat of a turning point for this. Well, like, what do you think it was that has created this society that seems so? trigger happy with saying someone can never speak again like i saw someone make this fantastic uh, i think it was tim pool and they were talking about the the sort of ongoing debate on twitter about who gets their account back basically yeah yeah, yeah. and they they were laughing because they said you can murder four people in the street and you can get out of jail but <laughs> but if you've said <laughs> If you've said something that like the the Twitter sphere deemed to be, or the previous Twitter administration deemed to be wrong, yeah, you you might never get your ability to have a Twitter account back. Like like Alex Berenson, who's successfully won his court case against Twitter um, and got put back on the platform, but he was he was stating things that like the reason he got banned was for stating something that now is widely accepted to be completely accurate. And he may have had his right to to use Twitter removed forever for that, and yet, yeah, someone who 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 yeah murdered four people on the street has more chance for redemption. Obviously, slightly different circumstances, but the the problem is again a bit like a bit like what I've said about um, how PayPal is now so integral to the the way our economy functions. Whether you like it or not, and whether you use it or not, Twitter is an essential part of of the public square. I mean, for better or worse. I mean, I think there's a good argument for saying it's had a horrendous consequence on uh, a horrendous effect on the uh, quality of of public debate um, in Britain and America elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but but nonetheless, it is where a huge amount of our public debate and discussion now takes place, and so it, it has become something much more than just another private company. To, to answer the first bit of your question about, about yeah. why 2016 and where it's come from, um, I, I think that the immediate triggers in part uh, um, are political, they're Donald Trump, they're Jeremy Corbyn, and mm -hmm. so on. And so there is this yeah. populism on the left and the right and so on. Um, so I think that that will not be news to anybody listening to this. But I think the, the deeper roots go back um, further than that. I mean, you could probably say all the way back to the Reformation if you wanted to, but I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm quite persuaded, and this is not this is not my original argument by any measure, but I'm, I'm quite persuaded by the idea that the collapse of religious belief um, has laid, um, has created a vacuum, which is now being uh, filled by this successor ideology, what, what people in the vernacular were called woke, this sort of authoritarian mm -hmm. progressivism, um, and that it has hijacked 
latent Christian impulses, particularly ideas around uh, victimhood. Um, and in a way, it's almost like the perfect virus to infect uh, the host body of, of the West because we're so susceptible as a society to these ideas about um, the obligations of the strong to defend the weak and so on. Mm. And so I, I think lots of the of, of the of the authoritarian progressive ideology um, is well, it's certainly post-Christian. I mean, I think that's the reason why this is happening in the Anglosphere West. It's it's not happening in India. It's not happening in Japan. Um, and I think it is it is filling a void that's been left by by the collapse of of Christianity. And I think lots of the um, of the energy that people would want to put into uh, religion. They're now looking to invest in politics. They're looking for politics to provide the kind of fulfillment um, that, that once would have been provided by, by religion. Mm. Um, I don't know what the answer to any of that is, um, but I, I hope that's a vaguely interesting answer to your question. I mean, I, I think that that's probably where it comes from ultimately. Yeah. You're far from the first person to suggest that to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm becoming increasingly convinced that there's at least, that's at least part of what's going on. Yeah. Um, because I think, yeah, I mean, people, people will worship something um, like the, I think the, the idea behind the book and TV show, actually, um, American Gods by, by Neil Gaiman. I think there's, there's something very real to be said about that, about the new gods or, you know, technology and, and television, phones, the, our political <laughs> religion or, our sport, you know, it's just yeah. humans want to deify something, whether yeah. that's, whether that's, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn or Donald Trump or, um, whatever political commentator they think is the greatest person on the planet, whether that's Joe Rogan or Ibram X. Kendi or, you know, any, any of these people um, with huge, huge reaches. Um, so again, I mean, I'd say I, you can be as woke as you like. It's no skin of my nose whatsoever. You can be as progressive as you want to be. That's absolutely fine. You can go into the public square and make your arguments. You can win people around. You can win elections. You can change public policy. You can make your case in parliament. You can go on TV. These are all the established means in a democratic society by which these things are done. So I, I don't have an objection to people being progressive in their politics or arguing for progressive causes. Um, what I do object to is authoritarian progressivism, just as I would argue against authoritarian conservatism. And if we were having this conversation in the United States in the 1950s, we'd be talking about, you know, our, our case would be helping people who'd been blacklisted in Hollywood because they were accused of being communists. So I'd make exactly the same principled argument to you. Um, so you can be as woke as you want to be. That's not the problem. The problem is when your HR department of work is sending you around uh, lists of, of anti-racist authors and saying this is effectively now the company policy towards race. Because that goes beyond a policy. That goes to beyond mandating a, a philosophical view. Um, and I, I don't think I fundamentally don't think that an employee should be required to uh, endorse the philosophical views of their employer. Of course, there are exceptions to that if you work for the Labour Party. It's not unreasonable to <laughs> say you have to agree with, what, with, our, with our political and ideological stuff. So, of course, well, that varies quite significantly uh, depending on which year you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, of course. But so, I, you know, the, the, there are, of course, exceptions to that. But in general, for most employees, for most employers and businesses, um, I, I think that's the case that you should not be required to mm. parrot the philosophical views of your employer and i think also there's something very there's a strong case of saying that sections of society large sections of society should be non-political that politics shouldn't generally be, be brought into the workplace um, but unfortunately that that is what ha that is what is happening um, it's not always top down often it's it's uh, it's a certain cohort generally i'm afraid of younger employees coming in um, and you see this a lot in publishing uh, where they are trying to uh, to drive a certain progressive uh, ideology through. And again, that, that's not in itself necessarily objectionable, but it's when they say, okay, well, we're not, not going to work on books published by gender-critical feminists or by conservatives uh, because we don't agree with them. So when you've got a situation where publishing staff are saying that, we've really lost the plot. Mm. Well, I like to hope that, that then 
it will better publishers will pop up and that, that so. the whole yeah i think that yeah the, the go woke go broke thing is is because it's not because of the ideas that they hold it's because of their demand to not have any other ideas it's exactly. like i think what you've said is 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 puts it perfectly that you we need to have it's fine go believe whatever mad shit you want I don't care if you believe that interdimensional aliens were the source of the January 6th uh, storming of Congress. I don't care if you think that no gender has ever existed and people are all just neutral, malleable automatons of, of but nothing. But they require me to believe it. Yeah, but that's, like, that's you know, just it, it's for me, it's always like if you're if you want to censor someone, I think you've already lost the argument. Because all it betrays is the idea that you you're so terrified that your point of view might be bad or wrong, yeah. that you have no you don't want it challenged because you can't you can't back it up. You, if you can't stand up if your if your your ideas can't stand up to criticism, then then they're not very good ideas. And then you might have to face the fact that maybe what you think isn't a, isn't particularly yeah fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, just before we go um, and sort of wrap up here, I did want to talk about one more thing, yeah, which was the the online safety bill because um, I think disturbingly it's not getting a lot of coverage, um, and it, it's basically a step down the road whereby the government is going to have some sort of say in what is allowed to be said on the internet, which seems. Like essentially the, the very antithesis of what the internet is meant to be. Um, do you believe that they can succeed in in regulating this? So the registration started in part um, wanting to stop uh, young teenagers from being exposed to uh, horrendous content online, mm -hmm. pro-suicide content, that sort of thing. I, I can't really see that anybody would, would object to that. No. Uh, Unfortunately, it started from that premise and has grown exponentially to encompass all manner of online activity and uh, online harms, quote unquote, um, to the extent that the, the draft, the most recent draft of the legislation um, would have uh, mandated that social media companies remove legal but harmful content. And uh, I, I mean, th th that expression is so utterly devoid of, of sense and is so menacing towards free speech, it really can't be overstated. So legal but harmful content would be banned online. And well, Just to point out, actually, I believe that um, that clause has actually been dropped from it. It has. And what I was going to go on to say, so this is, this is the first, or well, not the first, but the earlier draft of the legislation. Mm -hmm. So that has been dropped, we have been led to believe. Um, but the, the original legislation would have meant that the Secretary of State for Culture would have been able to designate what counted as harmful. So Parliament would pass this legislation and the Secretary of State would be able to say, well, uh, X, Y, and Z, those, those types of material are harmful. So social media companies, you have to remove it. So it, it was as authoritarian towards uh, freedom of speech online as it was possible to be. So as you said, the legal but harmful has been uh, dropped, we think. And uh, we're having this conversation on the 24th of November, and it's just been announced a couple of hours ago that the uh, revised legislation will be before Parliament again, I think, on the 5th of December. Um, so we're really now just waiting to see uh, if the legal but harmful language has been completely removed, as has been suggested it will be, um, and see what the uh, what the new legislation will look like. But the other aspects of it that we're particularly concerned by uh, is under Clause 52. Um, and this is a clause which specifies that if... Uh, content is illegal in any one part of the UK, so if something is illegal to say or post online in Scotland, social media companies should remove it all across the UK. So in other words, Nicola Sturgeon can decide um, that, say, gender-critical speech online is uh, harmful, to give a speculative example. And then if you're posting that in England or Wales or Northern Ireland, you can find that your post is taken down, that your account is suspended because social media companies are compelled to remove it because it's illegal to say in Scotland. So this is a huge danger uh, in the legislation as well. So as I say, we're 
we're going to see what comes back before Parliament on the 5th of December, and we'll have to see what it what it looks like. Um, the original aim of the bill was, was pretty non-controversial, but it has waded into territory, which is, um, as I said, it can't be overstated, the, the, the menace that it poses to freedom of speech online. Um, so we'll see what comes back on the 5th of December, and hopefully it will be a dramatically revised piece of legislation that sticks to its original purpose. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. What's also shocking that I want to pull pull up for people here is that, um, so according to the spectator, I'm going to believe that they've got their facts right here, um, says this duty um, in terms of the legal but harmful duties was also going to apply to encrypted messaging platforms like WhatsApp and iMessage, which, which, which is like, whoa. So they're, they're, the idea is that they could just, you could, you, <laughs> you couldn't say like, even, even if the point is like, you don't want people to be exposed to like, you don't want the wrong people to be quote unquote platformed because it gives them like a wide, you know, mm -hmm. like a loudspeaker to talk to a lot of people. Um, but as well as that, that you could, text someone the wrong thing as a joke probably because yeah. like who the fuck is this there's not going to be there's not gonna be humans reading the entire message or messaging thread and then on top of that it's like who the so right so that just all of our encrypted messages are going to be read now is that is that what they're saying i mean the direction of trouble i mean this was um i think it i think it was 2020 there was a piece of legislation passed in uh in scotland um, one of the many uh, problems with it, it was a piece of hate crime legislation, one of the many problems with it uh, as it was being drafted was it it, it, it removed the private dwelling defence, i.e. you can say something in your own home that you, you would not be at liberty to shout um, in a public square or to post online or, or whatever. Um, so I, I think you can, you can see the issue of WhatsApp that you just raised in a similar uh, light where this idea of of, uh, of what you can say privately uh, is also being eroded and is also being placed under attack. I think I make one more general point about the legislation is that MPs get a lot of abuse on social media. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a member of Parliament, Twitter must just be an absolute cesspit. <laughs> so, Probably, yeah. You know, and and for the staff, the, the MP staff looking through all of that every day and the abuse message and all the rest of it, I get that that's not going to be much fun. Um, and lots of it goes beyond not being much fun and is is threatening and there are death threats and stuff. So I, I think it's pretty non-controversial to say that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, you know, no, nobody wants to see that. But I think the issue is that gives MPs probably such a distorted perspective of what most social media is like mm. um, that in a way they're the worst people to be making these types of decisions yes. because their perspective is not the perspective of an ordinary social media user. So mm. I, I think that's also a problem that and if I was speaking to a member of parliament, I'd put that point to the management to, to bear in mind that there is a duty to uphold freedom of speech for their constituents, um, even if they are bearing the brunt of some pretty horrible stuff on social media. Mm. Had not thought of it like that, actually. That's a very good point. I'm sure. Although as well, when you talk about death threats, they should be banned. It's like, I don't believe in banning people from many things, but calls to violence and threatening people seems like the thing that, like that plus doxing, those seem like the two things that seem very reasonable to ban someone for, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just one, one example to illustrate the point was um, after the, uh, the, the murder of um, Sir David Amos, there, by, um, by, uh, by an Islamist, there was this this frenzied debate in the days afterwards about banning online anonymity on social media. Now, to my knowledge, there's there's been no demonstration, no proof that the uh, the man who stabbed him, the, the murderer, had had um, had targeted him online in any way. I mean, perhaps he had, but I've not seen any evidence of that report so far. So there was this very strange kind of misdirection. Firstly, not wanting to talk about the the issue of how to. Uh, to tackle, which is a much overused word, to tackle Islamist ideology in Britain. Um, and instead there was this, this distraction, this funneling of energy and attention into uh, online anonymity. And for lots of people, um, for example, for ex-Muslims, online anonymity is absolutely vital to them being able to express their views because they will find themselves under attack either 
figuratively or, or very literally um, for expressing their opinions. So I think, again, unfortunately, that is another example um, in, um, in utterly dreadful circumstances of where MPs are, are, are not thinking perhaps about, about the issue of social media regulation in a way that, that most people would like them to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, anyway, Benjamin, it's been great chatting to you. It's been a lot of fun. Um, do you want to point people towards anything? Um, links for Free Speech Union and everything we've discussed will be in the in the description below. But is there anything else you'd like to direct people to? Well, if I could give a, a quick plug, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, membership starts at uh, two pound forty nine a month for uh, for students, and uh, I think it's just four pound ninety nine a month for everybody else. So uh, join up. And uh, our case and legal teams are helping people every day, as I said, from all walks of life who need our assistance. Um, and a uh, pleasure talking to you. Thanks very no much. No problem. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe, because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.